Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to stop the presses and have an emergency meeting about what everyone's talking about. No, not the Democratic primaries, the coronavirus. We'll also take some Q&A, talk about wire gauges. I'm going to try to review a crazy Walmart table and give you an exciting place to visit in Smuggler's Notch, Vermont. So let's go. So I know I said last week that I'd be talking about air conditioning in vans and well, heck it's only March. We're not desperate for air conditioning at this point. So I wanted instead to focus on something that I've seen talked about everywhere and something that's actually affecting my life personally. And that is the coronavirus more officially known as COVID-19. Oh boy. Okay, folks. Um, first off, No, it's not time to panic. Honestly, it's never time to panic. I mean, when is it time to panic? How has panic ever helped anything? I mean, I suppose if you trip over a baby bear in the woods and mama bear's right there and she's not too happy with you, yeah, you might as well panic for the three seconds you have to live. But in general, panic is not the best strategy. However, concern and precaution, those are often good things. Let me preface this by saying I am not a medical professional and you should be listening to medical professionals. That is, if you listen to an MD, you are probably in the right place. If you're looking to the CDC for advice, even though there are arguments that they've been compromised under the current administration, you're still probably in the right place. If you're listening to talking heads on late night news shows, maybe not so much. So I have been gathering lots of information I'm going to try to distill it down for you and talk about how it applies specifically to folks living in vans, because there are some special concerns and benefits. Let's be clear. COVID-19 is not the flu. And there's an analogy here that I think might work. The flu is short for influenza. Influenza is a group of viruses. So imagine that influenza was another name for Ford. Okay. So you've got Ford, you've got all different kinds of Ford models, right? There's like the galaxy 500. Okay. I'm a little bit old. Um, there's the Pinto. Geez, still old. Uh, I don't know. What does Ford make now? Um, the flex. No, they stopped making that. Uh, C-Max. No, they stopped making that too. Mustang. Yes. So the Mustang would be like this year's flu, but maybe next year's flu is going to be say a festiva. And the one after that is going to be the F-150. You can see the thing here. They're all Fords, but they're all different. They do different things. They have different characteristics. So that's influenza is Ford. Coronaviruses, which is one word. Coronavirus is one word. They're called that because they have a bit of a crown on them. That's what Corona means in Spanish. They're say Chevys. Okay, so you've probably encountered coronaviruses before. You may see people saying coronavirus is just the cold. Well, the cold, catching a cold means you've caught a virus and you have a viral illness. There is no one thing that is the cold. And some of those viruses that cause colds are coronaviruses. Are they Corvettes? Are they Impalas? Are they Malibus? It it all varies. So what we have here now is a brand new Chevy. It's a Chevy Phalanx. Have you heard of a Chevy Phalanx before? I haven't because I just made it up. It's a brand new Chevy that nobody's ever seen before. 
Now, with a Corvette or a Chevette, you know, we've got parts for those. We're used to them. We can work on them. We know how they, they operate, and we know what to expect from them. But a Chevy Phalanx? We've never seen that before. And that means that our bodies have zero immunity against these things. That's the concern. This virus is brand new and it has characteristics that make it very likely that it's going to spread far and wide. And it has a relatively high mortality rate. So let's talk a little bit more about the specifics of this virus. This virus has an unfortunate characteristic in that you can catch the virus and not know it. That means for as long as two weeks, you can be infected with this virus and share it amongst your friends and neighbors. It's pretty hard to control for that. Uh, it's not like you can feel sick and then go sequester yourself. You won't even know you're sick. And sadly, 2% of the people, mostly the elderly and folks with some sort of breathing problem, will die from this. And if 2% doesn't seem a lot to you, let me put it to you this way. If your state suddenly adopted a 2% sales tax, you might think, well, that's not very much. But if your state added 2% to your current sales tax, hmm, that sounds like an awful lot. And to put it in perspective, if you have a town of 100,000 people and they all get the virus, let's say, 2,000 of them are going to die. Now, I've heard people say, well, it's only 2,000. But take a step back here. What else kills 2,000 people in a matter of weeks? Imagine if there was a car accident that killed 2,000 people, or a building burned down, or there was a terrorist attack. Those would all be very, very big deals. And that's just in one city. And we have dozens and dozens of cities that size in the U.S., some of them 30 times that size. Yes, coronavirus is something we should be concerned about. However... It is not the zombie apocalypse. It is not this death plague that's going to come and kill everybody. We're not going to see bodies in the streets. What we're going to see are disruptions in our daily activities, and those are already happening. Now, if you happen to get the coronavirus, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not even going to call it that anymore. If you happen to get COVID-19, what are you going to experience? Well, 80% of the folks who catch this are going to have mild symptoms that include shortness of breath, coughing, high fever, symptoms that you've had with other illnesses. Some people, though, are going to get very, very sick, and those are the ones at high risk. So if you do feel like you're getting sick, it is still worth it to go to the doctor. So back to van life. We live in a slightly unusual space here, right? I mean... Most people live in a house or an apartment, they get up in the morning, they go to work, maybe they drive their car, maybe they ride in public transit, maybe they go out to lunch. They're interacting with people uh, fairly often. Not all folks in vans are doing that, but it is a fallacy to think that all people living in vans are doing the same thing. Forget about the van part and just consider how you're living your life. Are you somebody who comes in contact with people a lot? Um, maybe you should try to do that a little bit less. Are you someone who can travel? Maybe while this whole virus thing is going on, you want to go visit some of the more rural parts of the state. But the thing that's going to matter the most in this crisis is that you wash your hands. Now, living in vans, our hygiene standards might be a little bit different than they are living at home. It's much more difficult to take a shower and to actually wash your hands. Or you might be one of the many van life people that use public restrooms. 
that increases your risk somewhat. My bathroom at home that my wife and I use, whatever's in there has pretty much come from my wife and I. Whatever we have, we've already caught. We're done with it. But if that bathroom were used by 300 people a day, it's a different story. Considering all those things, what can you do to keep yourself safe? So here's, here's my advice. And again, always trust your medical professionals. Number one, do not wear a mask. Do not buy masks. We have a public health crisis right now that we cannot get masks. I work for an organization that uses a lot of N95 masks. And when I say a lot, I mean tens of thousands over the course of a couple of years. We go through these things a lot. We cannot buy anymore. Now, we need them to respond to disasters to keep our teams uh, protected from mold and dust and other things. And if we respond to too many disasters in the near future, we're not going to be able to protect our people. And that's because folks are buying these masks who don't need them. They're scared. I get it. But the masks are not actually going to protect you all that well, especially if you don't know how to put them on. This isn't like working in your wood shop where you get a dust mask and put it on. An N95 or an N99 mask needs to be put on properly. And they can actually reduce your health. And this is something that we teach our folks is when you're wearing one of these things, you can't breathe as well. They are restricting the airflow that you're taking in and that can cause problems, especially if you're sick. When should you wear a mask? I'm going to say basically when your medical professional tells you to. Um, if you're super concerned about it and going out in public, yeah, go ahead and wear a bandana if you want. It would offer some protection, but this virus is actually not airborne in that way. It's the kind of virus that is going to be found on droplets left by people coughing, like on keyboards or tables or elevator pads, those type of things. The number two thing that is the most important thing is wash your hands and do it properly. One, so here, here are the official instructions to wash your hands. And I know it seems silly for someone to be telling you this because you're an, most likely an adult and you've, you've known this, but no, really washing your hands. You can use any kind of water. It does not have to be hot or warm. The reason we use warm or hot water to wash our hands is because it's more comfortable and it lets us stay, keep our hands submerged for longer, but cold water, even water that's 33 degrees will work just as well. Use soap. Uh, any kind of soap. If it's soap, it will work. And then scrub your hands in between your fingers all and go up your wrist as well. Take off your watch, go under your watch for 20 seconds at least. How do you time 20 seconds? Well, yes, you can set a timer, but you can also sing happy birthday to you twice. Or if you're a John Oliver fan, you can memorize that Vietnamese wash your hand song. That'll work too. The third thing that's important is to try to avoid touching your face because this is how transmission works. There are droplets on a table, you get them on your hand, and then you scratch your lip. The, your lips are made out of uh, a tissue called a mucous membrane. These are also found in your eyes and in other places, and that's where the viruses get in. They actually can't get into your through your regular skin. They have to get in through one of these mucous membranes. So don't touch them. Don't touch your face. Try to avoid touching your lips. And if you're going to do something where you're going to come into contact with a lot of people, like let's say you're a cashier and you're handling a lot of money, wear gloves and learn the proper way to remove gloves, which isn't just to rip them off. 
you should watch a YouTube video on the proper way to remove latex gloves. It's basically pinching the palm and then turning the glove inside out so that nothing on the outside ever contacts any of your clean skin underneath. You've taken every precaution and yet you still got sick. Now what? Well, this is just good advice for anybody living in a van. Have a plan B, have an escape plan. For me, I, like I said, I'm not full-time. If I get sick, I'm going to come home. But if you don't have that option, have an emergency fund available so you can lock yourself up in a hotel room for a while. Being sick in a van sucks more than being sick in a house. It just does. Living in a van requires a bit more work just to get about your daily activities than it does at home, and that is so much harder when you're sick. You don't want to be sick in your van if you can help it. So have a plan B. Have a place to go. And if at all possible, have a support network, someone who can bring you food, someone who can check in on you to make sure you're okay. I know that isn't always possible for folks in vans, but that is the ideal circumstance if you can handle it. The bottom line with COVID-19 is that you are going to see some interruptions. There's no reason to panic. And that if you're a young, healthy person, this probably is not a threat to your life but there's no reason not to take precautions. Oh, and if, if you doubt the disrupting of life part, I have to say you're not paying attention. And that's, that's acceptable because you're in a van. You're, part of being in a van is not having to pay attention. But across the country right now, conferences are being canceled, travel's being canceled, cruise lines have abandoned entire markets. One cruise line just went out of business, actually. This is going to have an impact on... Um, on our lives. So we're going to require a bit of flexibility and a bit of patience. Van life folks are extremely resilient. We're independent. We know how to take care of ourselves. We are going to be fine. So long as we don't let panic change who we are and what we're doing. Tech talk. Wires. You're going to build out your van. You're going to need wires, right? So what type of wires should you use? This question is a little bit more complicated than I wish, and it's, I'm not going to get into too many of the details. I'm just going to give you a general guide to wire sizing in a van. I didn't do this very well when I built my van. When I purchased all my lights and things like that, I looked at the wires that they came with. Like my LED lights have 18 gauge wire. And I thought, oh, well, that's what they came with. That must be an acceptable size of wire. So I bought a spool of 18 gauge wire, which is relatively thin, and I ran that in most of the van. Well, 18 gauge wire is too thin, and here's why. The thinner the wire is, the more voltage drop you have over distance. So an 18 gauge wire might be fine if you're running a running current over a foot, but if you're running it over 10 feet, it loses voltage. And what I found is that if my battery is at say 13 volts at the other end of my wire, it can drop down well below 12 volts. Now, as it happens, the way my van is, it doesn't really matter. My lights are a little bit dimmer and uh, the fan I have turns a little bit slower and the wires warm up a little bit, but not enough to matter. So even though I've made this mistake, I'm fine. It's not worth it for me to rip everything out. But if you're starting out and you're doing new wiring, you might as well do it right. So that said, what size wiring is right? It really depends on what you're doing. 
If you are wiring lights, yeah, 18 gauge is fine, but I would recommend you go a little bigger, maybe 14 or 12 gauge, because you don't know what you're going to be doing in the future. Maybe you're going to be putting lights that draw more power up there, or maybe speakers or something else that's powered that needs more power. Fans, I would definitely do 12 gauge or 14 gauge. Uh, 14 to 12 seems to be good for most of the things. If you're going to wire something that heats, anything that heats, like uh, a hot water kettle, or, uh, or actually an electric heater, which is not necessarily a great idea. You want really, really thick wires. Your solar panels. Most of the cabling that comes with solar panels is 10 AWG, and, and that's in the U.S. In, in the U.K., they actually, actually just measure the thickness of the wire, which makes more sense. In the U.S., we use AWG, which is American Wire Gauge. With gauges, as the numbers go down, the size gets bigger. So a zero-gauge wire is quite large, and a 20-gauge wire is quite small. If you're dealing with heavy power things, you definitely want thicker, thicker cables. So 10 average wire gauge, I would call the minimum for solar panel. Hooking wire, uh, batteries together, like if you have two batteries in series or parallel, however your batteries are hooked up, you want really, really thick, short wires. Uh, two gauge or even zero gauge. There's always a trade-off between flexibility of the wire and thickness. So you're going to have to figure that out. But with high amperage things like that, you want as thick wires as possible. One of the trickiest things is if you have a split charge relay under the hood, that is connecting the two batteries together, but it's a long distance. So you got to be very careful with that. I ran two gauge, actually it might've been four gauge, but it was fairly thick. And I bought a special cable that was thick and flexible to run between the front and the back. And I only ran the power cable because the entire body of the vehicle is the ground. So I grounded at either end and ran the power cable. And yes, I fused it at both ends near the batteries with 150 amp fuses, which is near the rating of my alternator, which is where most of the amperage is going to come from in this scenario. So bottom line, without getting too specific into gauges, run thicker wires than maybe you're thinking of. If you run too thick wire, what happens? Well, you spent a little bit of extra money on wires and they're a little bit less flexible and maybe a little harder to install, but that's it. So really you can't go too wrong with oversizing your wires. And by doing so, you're actually future-proofing a bit. So give it a thought. Okay, product review. When I um, was first building my van and my, my very first build out was literally I just threw stuff in the van. I mean, I had some boxes and I had a, a cot and that was it. And <laughs> you know what? It works just fine. I didn't have a table. So I was trying to figure out, you know, I just needed like a TV tray table. I mean, I didn't need a whole lot. So I'm kind of cruising through Walmart because that's where you go for cheap stuff like this. And I found this table that was pretty cool. Um, and I'll, I'm going to try to explain it to you. It is a, it's a squarish table that's kind of like a TV tray table, but it does a whole bunch of, of interesting things. It's made by Costco, not Costco, C-O-S-C-O. -S and its official description is the multifunctional adjustable personal folding table, black. This table is just enough size for one person. It's exactly the right size to put your laptop down and have a mouse there and a drink behind it. But what I really like about this table is that it folds up to nothing and you can do it in different ways. So the legs are a U-shape and then there is a rectangular bar that comes up that supports the table on a cantilever. The table tilts. So you can actually use this as a music stand if you want to. It even has a lip at the bottom that would hold papers. Or you can make the table completely flat. You can raise the table up so you can use it while you're standing or you can lower it way down so you can use it while you're sitting on the floor. It is completely adjustable. 
And when you fold it up, it folds flat, almost completely flat. It's maybe an inch thick, and I'm just stuffing it under the bed. It fits great. It is uh, easy to take it out and use outside. I will try to put a picture in the show notes, actually. I have a picture that I took with uh, of me having breakfast on the table in Colorado. This particular table, I really recommend. I'm a little concerned about the price. I thought I paid $18 for it. When I look at uh, Walmart's website now, I see that it's $48.39. That might be a bit pricey. It actually might be worth the money because a table I have found is a very important part of your van setup. And if it fights you, you're not going to be happy. So I'll have some links in the show notes to the product. Uh, shop around on the price. I don't, I don't think that that $48 price is necessarily the best. Again, that is the Costco, C-O-S-C-O, multifunctional adjustable personal folding table, black. All right, let's talk about a place to visit. Well, Vermont has been in the news this week and probably won't be next week, but I used to live there and I still have a huge hole in my heart that used to be filled with Vermont. There is something about Vermont that is absolutely special. And part of that is that Vermont is a state that you only visit because you want to. It's not on the way to anywhere. You know, like I live in Illinois and if you're driving across country east to west, there's a really good chance you're going to go through Illinois. In fact, if you live in the northeast and you want to go to the northwest, you pretty much have to go through Illinois unless you're going to take a ferry across the lake or cut through Canada. So a lot of people have been to Illinois, but the only people who've been to Vermont are people who have wanted to be there or they were born there or, you know, whatever. And that makes it kind of special. Vermont is, is a place of desire. And it's also the kind of place that everywhere you turn to take a picture, it's postcard worthy. Vermont isn't perfect. There's lots of problems there like everywhere else, but, but it is special and I miss it. And one of my favorite places in Vermont to visit is a place called Smuggler's Notch. Now, in the north-central part of the state, east of Burlington, there are several ski areas. Uh, Smuggler's Notch is actually the name of a ski area, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the actual notch in the mountain, where there's Mount Mansfield up there, which is the tallest mountain in the state. Uh, There is a notch that you can drive through. It's Route 108. It's closed in the winter for very good reasons. In fact, they had to close it to snowmobiles recently because snowmobiles kept crashing up there. And when you get up there, you'll see why. This is not for big rigs. If you're in a van, you're fine. It may be challenging, but you're going to make it. But if you're in, say, a big RV, if you're in a 40-foot RV, uh uh-uh, this isn't for you. Do something else. Rent a car and do this or ride bikes if you're very, very good at riding up hills. So imagine this, you're in the Vermont wilderness, uh, relatively speaking, this isn't the most rural part of the state, but it's, you know, it's, it's nice, lots of trees, lots of mountains, and you go up this winding hill and then you're in this odd space, which is what I love so much. This notch is filled with massive boulders and they were so big that the road construction crews didn't move them. So the road actually winds around these boulders. And then there are parking areas kind of behind the boulders. I don't think you're going to get away with parking there for the night. Uh, Vermont is not the most overnight van stay friendly state, unfortunately, but this would be, makes a great day trip. 
You can drive up in there, climb around on the rocks, and the rocks are nice because they're under trees. So it's always a decent temperature up there. I mean, it's Vermont. In the summer, it is always pretty nice in Vermont. That's where you go uh, to get away from the heat every place else. But it's especially nice under the trees. And there's hiking there. You can hike up to uh, different peaks. M- Mount Mansfield isn't, isn't like a Monadnock. It's a, it's a series of peaks, almost like a ridge. And some of these are interesting because they are um, a driftless zone. A driftless zone is a part of the country that was not covered by glaciers uh, back during the last ice age. There's some in Wisconsin and very northern Illinois, and Mount Mansfield was kind of like this island that stuck up above the glaciers. And it became a tundra, and that tundra is still there. There are plants that grow at the top of Mount Mansfield that grow nowhere else in the United States except in tundra lands, say in Alaska. And in northern Canada, you would find these too. But Vermont has this little tiny piece of tundra just left over from the Ice Age. And great views. Um, Just the quintessential New England mountain experience. So that's Smuggler's Notch. It's an easy drive from the Burlington area, anywhere in Chittenden County. And it's not far from Stowe, where a, you can have all kinds of quaint little lunches and, and visit the Von Trapp family and have your little Sound of Music experience. They actually built a big lodge there because it reminded them of Austria. One question I haven't answered for you. Why is it called Smuggler's Notch? Well, legend has it that during Prohibition, Canadian whiskey would be smuggled through this notch because it was very quiet and private at night and it wasn't well patrolled. Is it true? Could be. I'm not sure. Okay, uh, my friend Brian, uh, who is is quite the smart guy and has uh, spent a lot of his time in the desert, and uh, and he has a rig where he's got his this jeep and he he tows this uh, trailer behind it that's kind of been ruggedized a bit. Uh, he has this problem with heat, and since I was talking about heat in last episodes, he wondered if I had a solution. I don't know that I have a solution, but let's talk about it. And hey, maybe one of you has a solution. We can uh, bring it on in another episode. This is a classic RV problem. It's actually a classic heating problem that many homes have. If you have forced air heat, which is the opposite of what I have in my van, you have a thermostat generally, and the thermostat will trigger at a certain temperature, turn on the fan, it'll blow cold air, and then the heat will come on, and then it will blow hot air, And then the heat will stop once the thermostat reaches its temperature. The cold air will blow for another number of seconds, and then it will stop. And if you're in a tent trailer or a poorly insulated home or or RV, the temperature will drop almost immediately. And so the experience is that all night long, you're getting hot and cold, hot and cold. The fan's coming on and off, on and off, and it isn't really all that comfortable. You get cold, so you want to turn the heat up, and then you get hot, so you want to turn the heat down. So you're you're constantly in this cycle. That is one of the problems of forced air heat, and that is why homes have radiant heat radiators or baseboard radiators. They avoid this problem, but they're very expensive and hard to put in in a vehicle. So what's the solution? Well, I have some ideas. I don't have the absolute cure-all idea, but here are some ideas. First off, I know Brian's rig is over 10 years old, so he probably has a mechanical thermostat. If you open up a mechanical thermostat, 
there are settings in mechanical thermostats that a lot of people aren't aware of. Inside the cover, you'll probably see a circle with a wire going around the edge and in the middle, a pointer. It's actually shaped like an arrow. And underneath that, you should see the word anticipator and perhaps the word longer. And around the edges, there'll be numbers like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.6, 1.2, etc. This anticipator setting is what adjusts the cycles. If you find your unit is cycling too much, on off, on off, on off, you can adjust this to longer and it will do that less. Or vice versa. If you find it takes way too long before it gets too cold, you can turn it the other way to have the cycles come on quicker. So I am positive that RV manufacturers do not adjust these things before they sell their units. They just slap them in there, they work, they're done. So it's up to you to adjust this to your maximum comfort level. Yes, there is a way to adjust how quickly they come on and off that is not specifically related to the temperature of your rig. So radiant heat plus forced air heat might be a good solution. But in a, but in a tent trailer, you've got this problem where the beds are at opposite ends. And radiant heat, as I talked about last week, is line of sight. So where would you point it? That might be tricky. I think the best advice I have is to actually warm your bed. There are electric blankets that run 12 volts. That could be a solution if you had a lot of battery, but I'm going to go back to the hot water bottle solution. I think that on a very cold night, having a hot water bottle in the bed would be just the right amount of added warmth that you would be comfortable enough that you wouldn't be focusing on the furnace coming on and off all night. Of course, it depends on how you sleep. If you're somebody who can't stand to be under the blankets, that's not going to work as well. Also, those hot hands things, like I talked about last time, they work really well. If you don't want to go to the trouble of creating a hot water bottle and you're willing to spend a buck, throw a hot hands at the bottom of your, of your bed or your sleeping bag. Or if you're wearing socks, which isn't a bad idea, you could actually put one in, well, you can't put it in your sock. They're actually too hot, but you could put one like on your sock. You could actually, all right, we're getting a little crazy here. Tape it to your sock. Anyway, you get the idea. Do you have a suggestion for this problem? How to keep the temperature in your vehicle constant when you have forced air heat? Let me know. I'll pass it along and maybe we can all learn something from it. Oh, it's that time. Thank you very much for listening. This has been episode 14. I apologize for departing from the schedule. I promise we will cover AC next week. And we'll talk about some other interesting things too. I will definitely have a tale from the road next time. Music is by Sir Mooge, a.k.a. Simon Wag, as always. You can reach me at builttogo.com or builttogo at Facebook or at College of Curiosity on Instagram. Stay curious, find some new things, and enjoy the longer days that we're all experiencing. <laughs>